Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly grew Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-blowing. And we're back, guys, on Conspiranormal, and someone else is back. He's finally recovered. I'm here, mostly recovered. Yeah, and we got like a whole like do awesome setup. We got like a screen. Oh yeah, we got the projector. You, you've got a whole you've got a whole new um, sound system in here. Like yeah, a whole new recording. Everything's new. Bunch of new gear. Bunch of cool new stuff. We got new squirrels. Yes. It's, it's awesome. Yes, you have adopted squirrels. Alyssa adopted squirrels, let's be honest. Yeah, that's that's true. I yeah. found the squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, right? <sighs> You're raising those Illuminati squirrels. I told her that uh, I want you to understand, Alyssa, that we are raising the orphans of our enemies right now. <laughs> that's true. It was their parents that chewed holes in the roof, and that's why we have to replace the roof. But... You you have to be nice to all to all animals. Yes, we will raise them and release them far far away from here. Yes. So what does that entail? What are you raising? How are you raising them? It, well, it entails me after a long labor day of working, stopping at PetSmart and buying a bunch of syringes and little dropper bottles with nipple tips and <laughs> formula and all this stuff, only to find out that they can eat whatever the hell we throw in the cage for them. And now, yeah, now we just they're just eating stuff and they're, they were wild. Oh, they fell out of the ceiling. Yeah. Well, our guest here is Bernie Taylor. Uh, Bernie, before we kind of formally introduce you, do you know anything about the care of squirrels? No, I was thinking you guys are talking about squirrels. that He's got all new wiring. It's all wrapped up under the desk. 
Oh, <laughs> that too, but no, 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 real squirrels. <laughs> no, I know. Because I know that you're a naturalist. I didn't know whether this, you, you might have any advice for Rob or... No, that might be something out in a Tennessee being. We, we have some different squirrels out here in Oregon. Yeah, I was, I was in San Diego not too long ago. Squirrels out in California look really weird. Yeah. What's interesting is that if you have a rat in the home, everybody's – or actually a rat anywhere in the neighborhood, everybody screams, right? you got to get rid of the rats. It's infestation. But if a squirrel, which is another similar rodent, is bounding around, oh, my God, it's so cute. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> the tree rats. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty much true. And Sir Fiel is here. Say hello to everybody, sir. Hello, hello. He's not having to produce this week. No, no. Feels really good. Feels very good. Yeah, don't please don't die on us though. I'm trying Sir to relax, Fiel. yeah. <laughs> so guys, I'm really excited about this guest. Um it, I heard this guest on Where Did the Road Go and also on Graylian Report. And uh, his name is Bernie Taylor, and he has some interesting ideas about ancient astronomy and uh, some ideas about how this kind of ancient knowledge came down to us that does nothing to do with, A, either ancient aliens, or B, something like Atlantis. But before we get into that, Bernie, I, I kind of want to define because you 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 describe yourself as a naturalist, and I kind of want to define what that is and how being that um, lends significance to your work, how it influences your work now. Absolutely. So the most famous naturalists that we know are Darwin, Jane Goodall, Teddy Roosevelt, and John Muir. Later, yeah. Roosevelt became a president. John Muir became the, the founder of the um, Sierra Club. Goodall became a primatologist, and Darwin became a evolutionary scientist. Okay. Um, but they all started by um, spending time in the field, in the woods, and on the water, and they experienced nature from a immerse, being immersed in nature. Um, so, in my ex my experience was to spend a lot of time fishing and hunting. And being out in the woods for, you know, you know, when, when you, I used to bow hunt and bow hunters, you'll spend days just sitting in the woods. Mm -hmm. And when you're sitting in the woods, you see a lot of things going around you. You see the, the change of light and darkness throughout the day. You see the animals in your environment. And that led, my experiences out in the wood led me to write um, two previous books. And the, the last book I wrote was titled Biological Time. And in biological time, I asked a question that everybody sits, who sits out in the woods or, or spends time in the, the water asks, how do these animals know here to – because they move around during the day. So the elk are one place uh, you know, in the morning, a different place in the afternoon. How do they know to do that? Or the salmon. Salmon spend the juvenile you know, time, maybe a year or so, in the fresh water. They go out to the sea. They come back again. They're all, it's all synchronized. Sure. Is there one smart salmon that they all follow, or is there something that commonly um, cues them? And so the, the Darwin asked similar types of questions. He was out. He gathered specimens, and he saw differences in birds, and he said, you know, how can I explain this? And so I, I approached my time spending out in the, out the woods and um, in the water. I went back to the, to the libraries to university libraries and to the primary literature. And I asked these questions of how does a salmon know, how do they all do it in synchrony? Because I'm here out in Oregon, and the salmon are earlier or later from when you're the next. 
but they're always early or later together. Okay, and early or later could be a month and a half. It has nothing to do with the, the you know, whether the water's high or low. It makes no difference because they have to actually stage out in the bays before they come in. So, as a, a naturalist, from from my perspective, is someone who started in the land and then s- looked for answers um, how it all works. Native Americans would have been naturalists. Um, they looked at the, the entire picture of the world around them. They didn't look through a microscope. Um, they, uh, they they looked at the you know the, the light and the darkness of the day and the night. They looked at animals in, in synchrony with each other and how they related. Um, and they looked at the weather and they looked at themselves. Um, and they looked at themselves and how they they project their their own psyche into these animal beings. So that's how I see as as a that's my view as a naturalist. And I will never be a John Muir, Goodall, Teddy Roosevelt, or Charles Darwin. But I'm proud to be um, in such a path of being a naturalist. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that you always hear is, well, they know that because of instinct. But then nobody really asks the question, well, what is instinct? Exactly. And that, that's something we're going to go into today. Um, we're going to talk – we're going to um, – We'll talk about instinct further, but I'm going to explain how it worked with the salmon because it's just like one minute. Um, so what, if you go to Alaska during the summertime, it's tw- almost 24. It's 24 hours light. You get off the airplane and you're, 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 you're moving about and you're probably not going to sleep the first night because the lights are on unless you can completely shut it off. And you'll probably go fishing, hunting, whatever it is through that whole cycle uh, of light. You might even go two or three days without sleeping, maybe taking a little cat nap during the day after you have a beer. And what happens is that it's the light that puts this – actually, it's the, light, the light wakes us up and the darkness puts us to sleep. It's very simple. And, um, right. and in people in Alaska in the wintertime, they're typically groggy because they have that constant melatonin, which is synthesized in the darkness. Well, salmon are just the opposite. Salmon migrate in the darkness and they slow down in the light. And the light is not just the, the, the sun, but it's also the moon. So around a full moon, the salmon don't migrate. They stick where they are. Where they are. Um, and so they, if you look at a, um, the migration of the, of the salmon, both to the ocean and back again, they um, during the, the darkest nights around the, um, the new moon, they migrate prolifically. They slow down around the full moon. It's got these, you know, this, this, um, you can see the curves are pretty obvious. And that's what part of the work I did in biological time. But here's the sticker. Okay. So the, but the migrating by the sun and the moon, um, not rocket science. The cycle of the, of the moon is 29 and a half days. 12 times 29 and a half is 11 days short of 365. So if the new moon, if they migrate on a new moon on January 12th and migrating up the river year one, it'll be, it'll be, um, January 1st, the next year. And the reason why the salmon are early later for one year next is because that they're, they're tied to the moon and the sun, which are out of synchrony with each other. And it's the same, it's the same effect goes with uh, migratory birds and other animals. And I asked, when I figured this out, because no one had, people had done a lot of work on lunar events of animals. But what they didn't do is they didn't ask that same question of why they're earlier or later. And so I, um, I looked at the literature and all this sort of stuff. It, it just wasn't there. And I contacted someone who does this for a living. And um, he's, um, his name is uh, John Palmer. And he's a chronobiologist, studied biological clocks. And he had silence. I asked him the question, if you put these two together, 
has anybody written about that? He had silence on the end of the phone. And Palmer, he said, I can't believe we missed that. And Palmer had, um, he was he was fairly famous for per, putting the first, demonstrating that um, animals were affected by magnetism, which became, went on for MRIs and, and so on. He was the founder of that whole thing. Um, but I said that, you know, you know, even though Palmer didn't know it, a very bright guy, someone else might have known it. And I went to look at Native American calendars and calendars of people in, in the ancients in, in the Middle East. And I found that their entire food program, when they were going to catch, catch migratory fish, for example, was tied to a lunar calendar. And so their, their, oh. um, their lives revolved around these lunar calendars, which told them where they would be for any animals. Um, and even if they were you know, sedentary farmers, they still went to the rivers to catch the fish, which was in their calendars. And you go through religious calendars, the Christian, the Muslim, and so on. Right. Um, they're all lunar calendars, right. and so they're and they're tied to feasts of animals such as fish. And so I, I so when I did that, hmm. I, so I, I wrapped that up, and I someone said to me, you know, you got to look further in time. So I went to the cave at Lascaux, looked at images from cave at Lascaux in France from seventeen thousand years ago, and lo and behold, the nomenclature around these animals was tied exactly to how the Native Americans were doing it in their calendars. And uh, so I, I, I wrote the book. I put it out there, did a lot of scientific presentations, um, papers, all this sort of stuff. Most of it was around salmon because it's a big um, environmental and industry here in the Northwest. And I did my deal, and I said, well, I'm kind of a – you know, I'm out there in this. And so I'm going to put it on the shelf for 10 years, and 10 years later I came back, and I stepped into – Something I couldn't have imagined, and that is what we now have as before Ryan. Yeah. So just to kind of encapsulate that, this is a with a salmon. This is a because of the magnetism, because of the moon. This 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 triggers like a chemical reaction in them with a melatonin, which allows them to to migrate. So if you take the that. magnetism, you take the magnetism out of there, you're 100 percent on. Yeah. So that mag, they, they actually migrate through magnetism, um, but they, in terms of the, their location, but their stop and go is entirely to the sun and the moon, and uh-huh. the, the two being out of sync with each other, because 365 doesn't divide evenly into 29 half daily cycle, yeah. sets them earlier or later from one year to the next. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, and migratory, migratory birds. Um, I went through right. dozens of species of animals, and the, all the data was out there in these journals. And they they would have these individual events of like when does a deer rot or so on, and but no one would ever, no one actually put the two together. They um, and it was, you know, it was it was a no brainer. It was a pretty it's a pretty simple idea. The the pieces were all in the primary literature. Yeah, so- uh, it was just. So ancient man was able to use this, was able to see this pattern, use this, uh, the, the cycles of the moon and knew this such and such a time we can catch this fish. We can catch this bird. We can, you know, so that is interesting. It's because they were naturalists. Yeah. Because they spent, they spent their lifetime, not just days as I did on the woods and in the water. Um, or actually I'm going to say on the water and in the woods. Um, and they, they saw the world around them and how everything was in synchrony with both this, the, the moon and the sun. And they saw it in the stars as well. The stars does not affect the migration of, um, of, um, salmon 
but but birds do migrate with the stars, um, and that's what that was done a long many many years ago. But they they saw all these things, and in their it, so they, their cosmos was not looking through a microscope or you know measuring something in a test tube. The, their world was everything around them. Right. Um, it was the, the entire cosmos by looking at the stars and following the moon and the sun and all the plants and the animals in their world, and this this one synchronous. Um, cosmos, that was where, that that was their world, and they became they were animus. They believed that they, they could talk to the bears. They believed that they could listen to the wind. They believed that the clouds had a thundered or a voice. That is the mind of the animist, um, and the people that are in sync with the natural world, which we are not today. When you know we we stock up our fridge with Costco. And if you know we just not mood to defrost something, we head down to the Thai restaurant to pick up for takeout, um, which they didn't do. They they were in sync with the cosmos, and that's um, before Ryan takes it even further than this biology that I was looking at before. I was you know it was pretty much a quantitative book. A third of it was statistics. Uh, it was a scientific work, but um, when I went into this. So about four years ago, I I got back on track and I was continuing down the quantitative path. And then I saw something on a cave wall in an image. And I said, oh, my God, this changes everything. Um, And that set me off in a completely different directory of not biological clocks and not about, you know, you know, measuring melatonin and salmon and all these sort of things. It was just a it was a showstopper. Um, And it changed the way that I see the world. And that uh, many people have to today, and they they now have to. Every we all have to face this new elephant in the room. And this cave. Uh, well, tell us about this cave. This this is called. Well, I think there's two caves, right? So you I use I use gallery I use of discs a, and the correct, worm cave. Correct. I used I primarily used two two um, different images in the book. But I use other ones as well. And the the, the, the key one we'll, we'll kind of do tonight is the Gallery of Disc, which is in the El Castillo Cave. And the El Castillo Cave, at the time I was writing the book, they had found – just previously they had found the oldest cave art in the world, which was about – dated cave art in the world, which was about 40,000 years. They've since dated all older stuff at El Castillo. It's in the northern part of Cantabria region of Spain. Um, near the famous Altamira cave. And the, so this Elkisti, this image had come out of the, actually the, they found and dated this, this, these image, these um, cave art 40,000 years ago, but it took a pretty crappy picture. It was not very good at all. And so the, the media ran with a different image from another part of the cave. And the, the oldest cave art in the world was actually a dot. And they, it's just a red disc about a little small, about the size of the palm of your hand. Well, they found a better picture of disc in the cave. It was called, called the Gallery of Disc, which has about 80 of them streaming across this 10-meter-wide panel. It's a really cool picture. And the meteor ran with the Gallery of Discs, saying that the oldest cave art in the world was a dot, and they you know, they used this better image from the Gallery of Discs. So millions and millions of people had seen it in, in, the, in the media – same image I used in the book, um, and you know, hundreds of thousands had been to it, seen it firsthand because the, the panel in the cave had been discovered over a hundred years ago. Okay. So this this was not something like I dug up or you know a new discovery or anything like that. The world had seen this, and everybody did one thing: they looked at the red discs and people and they asked, "Well, well, 
why do they have these dots? All right. Was, uh, what was the what was the significance of the dots? Well, that's what. Um, so the significance of the dots is that they are a um, they are, they're a visual attractor. And explain to it, you know, it's a quick. Here's a naturalist story. This is going back to this fellow named Nicholas Tinberger won a Nobel Prize um, for his work on instinct, and which is we, you, first question you ask, and we were going we to get there. Um, and it was called his book was called The Study of Instinct. And Tinbergen, I believe, is in Belgium, lived in Belgium. He had a red delivery truck come by every day, and every time that truck came by, um, his fish in the tank went into a defensive posture. Whereas otherwise, just muddled about during the day, you know, fed, eat, things like that. And so Tinbergen looked at that and said, hey, this is kind of cool, but why did they do it? Because they can't think to do it because they they lack the cerebral hemispheres, which give us cognitive thinking. thinking. Their brainstem dominated. And so he said, this is basic instinct. And it's not just the basic instinct with these these fish in his tank, but it's why we have red stop signs or we actually react, react to the red stop signs. That's why we have them. Why, why we're attracted to the red lipstick and red dresses. If you go down to any main strip, McDonald's and DQ and Burger King all have red in their signs. But the organic stores don't. Just You probably know it would be kind of green. Um, and so Tinbergen, you know, he um, he popularized this idea. He made a science, social called scientific fact, and then Madison Avenue picked it up and through all of our um, use from from advertising. Um, and so the red, I believe that this concept of the red disc on this pat, this gallery disc was the exact same as why Tinbergen's um, fish were reacting to the red delivery truck. It draws out an instinctual reaction. It it pulls us to them and asks the question. What's important about these red discs? Which is the same question you just asked. I believe it was a test to these, the Pelithic Prentice who came into the, the cave, who's, who's being tested whether he can be a shaman. And if he, if he only asked that question of what are these red discs and how many are there, as, as millions of people did, he failed the test. He could never be a shaman. That was just there to grab whoever's attention. It grabbed the and attention. And there was a deeper level. And there, there, there are deeper levels beyond the imagination. And the first, the first animal I saw is I came, was, as I said, we have, we all have to now face that elephant in the room. And, and well, it is an elephant. And actually, there's four of them. There's four of them. And we have to face it that there's an elephant. And not only is it, um, it's an elephant, but it's an African elephant. There are elephants in Europe at that time, but they have a little humped head. Um, this has a flat head. And all, and all, and all. In all three of the heads you can see that are visible, um, the, the, the profile, they're all flat. Um, and so we have an elephant with a flat head, which is, flat head, which is a um, African elephant, in, in a cave in Spain. It doesn't stack up. So this person, this in the, the, the person who had made this panel, either carried with him or someone carried to him an image of an elephant that he had seen, person had seen in Africa that wasn't like his elephants and in Spain, um, or he, the, 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 the artist himself had seen an elephant. And so I contacted, so it was, a, I mean, I, I looked at this and I looked up all the elephants. I contacted someone from my distant past. I'm 53 now. And I met someone in the mid twenties. His name is George Schaller, Dr. George Schaller. And George is widely recognized as the world's foremost wildlife biologist. 
And it, uh, I, I lived in China in my, in my mid-20s, and I met George when he was doing some work on pandas or some or lap, snow leopards or something. And um, George is the mentor to Jane Goodall and everybody else you could possibly imagine. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's not as public as she is, and he spends most of his time working on big cats, and he's since mid-80s right now. So I contacted George. He didn't remember me. But I said, you know, hey, can you help me identify this elephant? And so he, he, you know, he looked, he said, you know, there's three other people that can help you out who, who are more into these you know, African big mammals. And so I contacted all three of them. None of them responded back. And I went back to George. Hey, George, they didn't respond. He says, yeah, I get it, you know, because I'm an independent. And so George, I'll help you out, but I'm not going to write anything. Um, and if you, you feed, if you feed me stuff, I'll answer, you know, the questions. Well, a year and a half later, and hundreds of emails, um, we sort of got to the bottom of it. Um, and not just the, that the elephant per se, but the dozens of other animals in the cave that were either that were both from the Iberian Peninsula, now Spain, Africa, and the Strait of Gibraltar in between them. And just to be clear, th- these figures that 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 you're seeing, they these they're not painted; they're more like chiseled into the rock. Is that correct? Well, there's well, so there. It's a combination. Originally, so this is a limestone wall, and originally it had this like um, had organic and mineral matter just covering the whole thing. And as the what the Paleontologist did, artist did was, he came in. He first thing he started scraping off um, what he wanted to see, and he 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 created nuances in the um, in the what's called the mineral matter that, that that's fairly dark. Um, to create characters, features within characters. So he, he through his his scraping, and then he puts some shadowing in with some sort of coal, charcoal, um, and then he puts the red discs on top of it. And the red discs, for example, he uses them for two eyes of, of, of an apprentice. He uses them for the molted pattern of a giraffe. Um, he uses them for hmm, the nose of the bottlenose dolphin, which probably doesn't really fit. But he uses them for um, – there's this hero character who's carrying a club, and around the hero character's neck is a, is a pelt, and the pelt is red. So presumably he has killed something with the, with the, with a club that was um, spotted, so you know, leopard or something, right? concept um and then there's there's a woman a female character that's her he uses this, the same discs to create the braiding in her red hair um so there's when we ask what the red discs are well they're they become features in other characters versus um a, you know the counting of the red discs themselves it also creates a there's a there's a mare a mare horse and the the um, red disc becomes speckles going down her neck um so the um so there's the this 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 artist was brilliant, and we think of brilliant artists. We think of Picasso, you know, Da Vinci, and so on. Andy Warhol, maybe I don't know. Um, this is or Michelangelo. This is the, the artist who made this, and I believe this was a solo artist for the gallery of desks. Was light years beyond any of them. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing like this in modern art or in historical art that we can see. Picasso himself was once challenged was asked. You know, to evaluate the cave art at Altamira to see if um, it was a fake or not. And Picasso came out and said, none of us could have done this. This really? is the real deal. Wow. He said this is real. Yeah. And wow. so now if you compare Altamira with – compare Altamira with the Gallery of Discs, it's a, it's a one to – it's Altamira is a one, one – let's say out of one, one to ten, Altamira is a one. This is a ten. Um, and so this is – the artist uses this – the same characters 
he creates four elephants out of one elephant. Uh, you know, he uses the same trunk. He uses the same trunk three times, and the ears three times to um, to, to use create th- three elephants. He has this, he transforms characters um, within a story, and it, it's. It's phenomenal, and there's nothing – there's absolutely nothing like this. Even in modern visual arts where you use, people use computers, there's nothing like this. And this is – people had etched you – know, um, engraved much of this in stone. Therefore, he only did it once. He didn't have redos as we you – know, we don't have layers as we have in, in Photoshop. Um, so this we're, – we're so far beyond what is so possible um, in, this, in this gallery of this image – that it's just daunting. There's we, and it it says a few things. One is there was there is no evolution of man in the last thirty four thousand years, because we have an artist thirty four thousand years goes far beyond anything we've done. Um, and then it, and as I go through the image, I talk about myth and so on. We we're still telling the same myths to the detail and the same characters. So we're telling the same stories, and we really haven't moved on that much with that either. Um, and then the third part of it is that. This these characters on this panel are the animals. The artists portrayed them as being as as an empathy. And when George, I would ask George these, these questions, you know, basically naturalist questions, chronobiology stuff, sort of stuff, biological cox. And George would come back to me and say, you know, he talked about this touching moment between the 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 lynx and her kitten. And I'm like, well, that really wasn't I was getting out. And you know, I I get five or six emails like that. Like, okay. What George is saying to me is that based on his experience in the natural environment for most of his life is that it's animals are not animals. They're animal beings, just as we're animal beings, and that there's emotional moments between them um, and that the, the Paleolithic artists had captured the same um, and that it, 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 re, it, it forces us to rethink about everything that we believe to be true. Um, based on a past that we have no about, idea about where we came from. What is I the think st- I answered a few questions there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what what is the what is the story that well, is being portrayed, or is so it several different ones at the same time? So I believe there's one. I think there's one one story. Okay. Okay. And the fundamental part of the story is that is a, a boy, an apprentice. Who's being told um, about a, a journey um, by the shamanic teacher? The journey is from a boy who travels, a young man who travels from the Iberian Peninsula through through across to the Strait across the Strait of Gibraltar and into Africa. And when he goes into, into Africa, um, he encounters he goes to a specific place. And as I said, I wasn't going to tell you how the book ends, which is the last chapter. Well, I can not going to do it today. But he goes to a specific place. And it's that's that place is um, in the story, um, and then he travels back again. And as he goes through the um, in in the specific story, all the animals, all the, on one side of the panel are animals from Europe, and the other animals from Spain. I'm sorry, from Africa. Right. And the this, the African animals include giraffe, mongoose, these elephants. Lions, um, a lion with a mane, whereas African European animals had manes. Um, there's a bunch of others, and for the for the in um, Spain, we have the Iberian lynx, we have the speckled mare, um, which are distinctly uh, for those animals. We have an, a, a great auk. These are distinctly European animals versus um, African animals, and uh, so the 
wherever he is, he sees the animals that are on his travels. And so if, if you got dropped off in an airplane, parachuted out, you don't know where the heck you are, and you land, there's a bunch of pandas around, and you're not in a zoo, guess where you are? Where would you Pandas. Be? Well, you'd be in China. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, And so the – we we identify places with the animals that are indigenous to them, okay. And so this 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 particular boy on his on his journey, he encounters all these animals, and so he knows where he is. And um and then he goes across the strait he goes across Strait of Gibraltar where there's a there's a seal there's a, a bottlenose dolphin and there's a crab. I'm not sure. And and so he um and we can actually see him swimming in the image, okay. Um, and he goes goes into Africa, but here this is where it gets. So that's that's like really cool. And it's kind of how people made maps in, in the distant past. They put the animals on to say where they were. And today, of course, you know, the United States is the eagle, and Russia's the bear, China's the panda, um, and is the Canada moose? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, like probably moose. Yeah, <laughs> it's a guess, right? Okay, we'll go with it. Now, I'm here, I'm here in Oregon. We have the beavers. Uh, the beaver is a state animal. Um, and so, so this, this, so that is like really mascots, cool. Mascots, um, mascots, yeah, the, the mascots, yeah, which is re- which is really cool. Totems, the to- yeah, totem, man, yeah. totally total animals. And so it's an, it is how we would envision um, they would have created a map and so forth. But then the next step, it gets really cool. I mean, it goes beyond what anybody could possibly imagine. Well, these animals that we see are actually the same as the Greeks saw the constellations in the night sky. And so the horse, the speckled mare, is Pegasus, and a, and next to Pegasus is an eagle, which is the Aegea, which we have pictured, and we have this huge character of a man, which is Hercules. As we go th- down, uh, uh, Pisces is the the bottlenose dolphin. Um, we have an Orion character at one end. Those two, the the we have the lion and lioness. The lioness is Gemini, and the lion is of course Leo, the great. And then there's there's bears which become Ursa Major, and and there's there's a bunch of other ones, but what's, they're all in the exact same spot or in the same part as the as part of the sky as the Greeks also found them in their constellations. Okay, um, so we have the so it's in the Hermetic tradition the Earth and sky became one, one. and that can so be kind of woo woo. Yeah, people kind of like throw the one out there. It's kind of like woo woo, and yeah, you know, like, you know, the stars are telling me what to do when I wake up in the morning. You know, maybe just before I wake up in the morning, when it's dark. Well, what this in this in the vision of this artist, the earth and sky were one. They were an animus, as a as a Native American one were that when they they spent their lifetime out in the in the um, in the real world, um, they could see that the, as the stars moved through the night sky, they were um, in sync with the animals they saw in and around them. Um, and as the star, as certain, so Ursa Major becomes the the bear, the mother bear, and there's actually there's two cubs. Well, Ursa Major was not there all year, and so this is this, Ursa Major. How it's positioned in this panel is a midsummer time frame. Okay, so we can actually date, we can we can time in the within the year when this panel is made. Mid June, mid June. We can also the, the the eagle is not just an eagle; it's actually a fledgling eagle. It hasn't flown yet. We can see the down on its side; it's about a foot high, which also places it about mid June. And the, um, the 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 lynx kitten again is a mid June time scene. So what this artist did was, if you if you were to look out your window and uh, paint a picture 
you you know do something you know there'd be some green out there maybe a blue jay you got you got your uh, wacky squirrels if you would do the same picture in january well i'm not sure it's like in tennessee but maybe it's not as green maybe that wacky squirrel isn't going around and maybe you have some other animals in the environment that you you wouldn't have done um otherwise i think squirrels are the official totem animal of conspiranormal now <laughs> <Sadly. laughs> okay exactly. yeah yeah, this is all. This is we have to look at all. We're going to look at life through squirrels from now on, um, and so the that that is the your world today is different from the world you're going to see in January. And so this artist he created the world that he saw in that time in this mid June time frame, which is not just the Earth but also the stars above them. And he he projected those animals from his psyche. The, the patterning of them into the night sky to make the, the constellations that the Greeks, the Phoenicians, um, the Romans, the Babylonians, and do, 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 and the people of Sahara today still use today. And to the, for the Greeks, I mean, they, they've got the whole – it is their catalog of constellations. So I wanted to ask you this about the constellations because you always hear that about that they were made by the Greeks. But – Obviously, Correct. there is a much earlier route to this. So, could, is this the is the route so far back into ancient times that really we shouldn't attribute them to the Greeks? Well, we can actually learn a lot. We can, if we look at um, constellations around the world among um, indigenous peoples, Native Americans. Um, not all Native Americans, but enough Native Americans saw Orion as a man. They saw Pleiades right. as a group of people, and they saw Cirrus as a dog. Okay. Orion is one of the most obvious ones because we we yeah. can see we that we ourselves can see the right. pattern of a man in the night sky, right. but we don't see a pattern of a dog in Cirrus. It's just a bright star, and Ursa Major does look like a legged animal. Okay. Well, we go into Siberia and other places, and even in Australia, you find you find um, Orion as a man, and you find Sirius as a, as a dog. Around the world, you find you find the, the, those three are common. So hmm. there there was a time when those those were when we must have all that those constellations all came from the same place. So somewhere deep in time. But what they what the Native Americans don't have is a bunch of these animals that we have in the gallery of discs. And partly because Native Americans, when we arrived, didn't have horses. They didn't have Iberian lynxes. Um, they had eagles, but you know they didn't have giraffes, and they didn't have elephants. Okay? There was nothing um, to equate them to. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they created they – created, they, they found new – they projected other animals in their world into the night sky's constellations. Okay. So what we can do is 34,000 years ago, we can say that there was this original group of constellations, this catalog that was, you know, it's set in stone and it works. The astronomy all works out. And we can, and I would say that the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, um, and the Babylonians and the Romans had actually been to this cave and others. And when they went to these caves, they looked at these, they, they found a bunch of characters and they, rec they easily recognized, um, Orion, because that's the first one you're gonna you're gonna figure out. And they figured out um, Pegasus. Is a, I'm sorry, they, they saw Orion. They said Ursa Major. Um, they didn't. Ha there's, there's not a dog in this one, but there's a dog. There's dogs in other ones, um, in the in the place of Cirrus. And so they 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 found enough of them. They said, okay, we've got a this these this these are constellations. And then they took the characters as they saw them to fill them out in their own in their own um, catalog. Um, and so the Greeks did not invent 
the constellations as we found in, in, in the Algamas from Ptolemy. The, what the Greeks did was they whole, wholesale lifted it to the Paleolithic record. And there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, you, you, you talk about ancient aliens and um, the Anunnaki and ayahuasca, and you can go through all these A's. There's a bunch of them out there. And what these, <laughs> or Atlantis, and what people are, there's, there's anom- anomalies out there. And the, the, the big anomaly is that civilizations or knowledge seem to have just come out of nowhere. So the ancient Egyptians for one. Okay. And they've said, well, things just don't come out of nowhere. They must have come from someplace. And so what this image shows us is that there was this, this knowledge from someplace, and it was a very deep in time, 34,000 years ago. And we can, be, be, between the Greeks, the Greek wreck, actually the Greeks and the Babylonians, they um, they have they had a fairly, the, the Greeks is more complete. The, the Babylonians is fairly complete. They had all this, fundamentally the same constellation, the zodiacal constellations. But we can see them in this, in this panel. And so that, so their knowledge didn't come out of somewhere. They lifted it from these, from these images. So there was some sort of a period of time between when they saw these cave images that they had a, um, they didn't have the complete, they had constellations, um, but they didn't have the complete picture as we have it today. Because if they had, the, if everybody, if everybody had continued the line for 34,000 years ago, everybody in the middle, in the Mediterranean who has these same animals would have the same constellations. But all of a sudden they pop up with the Phoenicians, the, 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 uh, the Babylon, the Phoenicians, Babylon, the Egyptians and, and the Greeks. Um, and there's some very specific characters in here that are, that tie into myths of people and, and, and architecture that we are monumental. You know, archaeological evidence that we can see that um, that are directly to cultures that you just couldn't make up make up the thing. And in the second chapter, I talk about, I talk about the myth of the of, of the, of the Amazon people, the so-called Berber people in Sahara, about a, an interrelationship between um, an elephant and elephants and women and a hero. And that image, that story, is just laid out in this in such a way that it's something you wouldn't make up. So the the Tuareg, all these Amazon Berber people of the Sahara, had been to this cave um, sometime in the distant past, and then they found they they still tell that myth today. The ancient Egyptians found the the Giza Sphinx image on this panel because it's identical, um, and so the the face of the Sphinx and it's just above the Leo the lion Leo. Um, so the Giza Sphinx is the lion comes from the lion Leo. Okay, um, we we can now say it because we can see the the source of it, and the, the Sphinx has the Nemes um, cloth in the back, all that sort of stuff. So you um, you see this as a kind of like an ancient, almost the the root of all this mythology. It's the root of every, well. It's it's it is a root to it's a root back to thir- at least thirty four thousand years ago. So fundamentally, everything we have in the Mediterranean, um, and I would say um, to North America, into North America, I don't know about South America, definitely into North America, um, because I I haven't seen all the South American myths. North America, throughout Siberia, um, into um, Saharan Africa, I don't, I can't say sub-Saharan, but definitely Saharan Africa, Um, and the we there. I believe that the Australian myths were came from a deeper point, in, a, a deeper root on the tree than this image. And so the okay. Australians, they have Orion, they have Orion and some other characters, but they don't have, they don't have this. 
they don't have this repertoire. So I would say that you know two thirds of the world comes from their mythology. The 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 idiosyncrasies of their mythology comes from these panels. From this one site, or are there different? So sites? I did in the book. I do two major panels. And I have some – I do pieces of others. But I've seen other ones that are not in the book. Yeah. They could have seen any of these in pretty um, – this is the most comp- – this gallery disc is the most comprehensive one I've, that I, I can identify. But there's other ones that have a lot of these pieces as well. Um, but I'm going to go with the gallery of disc was, as far as we know today, is the, is, is the earliest encyclopedia of sorts or book of natural of the, of the animist that we can identify. Whoa. Yeah, it's that like that is it's, fascinating. So, yeah, well, you know, we hear, you know, people. You've had people on your shows, and you've heard about others, and you know, they they talk about ancient aliens and um, you know, Anaki and Atlantis and ayahuasca and all these sort of things, yeah. and they're 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 trying to they're asking a question of where do we come from? You know, what is we what did we forget, and how did we refine it again? And it's they so they may they're hypotheses, they're not truths, but now we can look back. And check their hypotheses with what we can see where, you know, the, the, we can see the record now. Um, and we could, you know, I would over time, the whole the whole Atlantis thing in terms of it being a start of a civilization is, I mean, it's now Atlantis 12,000 years ago, whatever is, is now a moot point. It's 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 history. Um, and uh, ancient aliens trying to point everything, you know. This one's that one's that one's done too. Um, so the we, but what we have now is something even better. We have this ancient encyclopedia and there's other there's others in in different caves that we can really see our past and see where we come from. But we can also see well, why the heck didn't we didn't see this? Why didn't millions of people and hundreds of thousands of people have been in the cave seeing this panel? How can they didn't see it? And what can we learn from this about ourselves? our own educational systems and how we view the cosmos bigger questions and a greater pl- a more interesting place to expand than ancient aliens and ayahuasca and and these sort of things reading your book and uh, listening to you on the podcast listening to you now it reminds me of something that that occurred to me when i was in the smithsonian museum of natural history last year and there was a little display about cave paintings. And a thought just flashed into my head out of nowhere that just said, this was Eden. And essentially, that's kind of what you're describing. Is this root place that has, it, that has had a lot of influence on humanity, whether we know it or not. So this is what I'm this, without telling you how the book ends because we we agreed on that before the show. Yeah. Um, this isn't the root. Uh-huh. This is this this isn't the root, and um, this there was a root before this, and um, the, this gallery of discs is a copy. Hmm. But you have to take that journey through the book. You have to because as you went through the book. You know, you'd read a few few pages, and you're like, "Oh, this is really cool." Now I got it, right? And then you, and then I throw some other images at you that, that you're like, "Oh my god, well, how come I didn't see that? Um, how come I didn't think about that?" 
So you're going to you're you're as you go through the book, you're taking the journey of the apprentice um, and you're not really ready for the root of the root until you get to the end. And I wasn't ready either. Um, and so I hope you don't skip ahead in your Kindle to the end um, <laughs> that you continue reading it through. But the gallery of discs yeah. is not the root. And you actually know where the root is. You've heard this root so many times. And when you get there, you're going to like hit your head, hair on your head. You're going to drop your mic and you're going to say, oh, my God, how come I didn't see this? Interesting. Um, it's all it's all there. Let's talk a little bit about the hero monomyth. Sure. Because this fits in with this. Um, and I've always. Oh, been... you're doing right. It takes the hero to the end. I'm telling you. Yeah. I've always been fascinated with the hero with the hero monomyth, and you see, there's a root here with that as well. That mm-hmm. you know the Joseph Campbell stuff, <clears throat> which he didn't create; he just popularized it, obviously. But <coughs> Hello? yes, yeah. Okay, so the we, how I see the hero's journey is really. Because Joseph Campbell came, I think he came with like 12 steps, okay? Um, and But it's fundamentally an individual, um, we'll call it the juvenile salmon, you know, this three, three or four inch uh, salmon that is, it, it's go, it starts in the, in the headwaters and it swims, at, it's, it swims past its home out into the great ocean. Um, and it's, when it's out in the great ocean, it, it comes across its trials and tribulations and it escapes from you know the the bigger fish and so on and and it, it matures and when it matures it it, it comes back to um, its own headwaters to to restart the um, the cycle over again. Well, in the in the human imagination, we don't usually we animists would have talked about it as a journey of the salmon, but in today's time we talk about it in Star Wars. Um, Luke Skywalker is in his home in his natal waters, and he he leaves. He he's he's drawn away from the normality of his mushroom farm, um, and he goes <laughs> to um, he goes on this quest. And on this quest, he he has what's called spiritual helpers, so Yoda, Obi Wan, um, and they give him gifts. And one of the gifts is is the learning how to go inside the Force and how to harness the Force. And stay on the, the the light side of the force, and he meets other characters, um, you know, odd odd people, Chewie and um, Han Solo, um, um, CP three O and R T D two, and the, these characters all assist him on his journey. And of course, there's a damsel in distress that he saves, sort of is was Leia, um, well, she was perfectly capable of saving herself, and uh, so he goes, and then he he ultimately comes to face um, himself, which is in the last movie. But we're going to talk about it. We'll talk about the second movie instead. Um, in that, in the second movie, goes into the Dobaga Dobaga cave, um, and Yoda sa- he, he asks Yoda, "What do I need to bring in there?" And Yoda says, "The only thing you need to bring to the cave is yourself." And he goes into the cave, and he's got his lightsaber, and he he actually Darth Vader pops up. He starts fighting Darth Vader, and he lobs off the head of the helmet of Darth Vader. It falls to the ground, and in that helmet, he sees his own image. And what what George Lucas is telling us is that if you fight with the evil, at um out of hate, and out of um revenge, you yourself will become that same evil. 
And that's so um, that that is the, the theme. Luke, number of times in the story, has a chance to kill Darth Vader, but he doesn't actually do it. Um, and he so he faces himself, and that the hero faces himself, and then he comes he and he's overcome his own fears. He faces the true monster, which is within him, and then he goes back home to tell his story. But of course, in, in the in the Star Wars version, it doesn't happen to like the last movie when he um, we find him on this island and we, we learn that all the he's all the Padawans or Jedi apprentices that he has trained all died except one who then became the, you know the, the new Dark Lord. And so Luke is like, you know, I really I'm not really good at this. And my fear is I just became a really crappy um um, teacher and I've just started this whole thing over again. And in in that movie, he goes on to face that um, his his um, uh, his own apprentice who becomes the new Dark Knight, um, and he ultimately prevails. And and then he then he die he dies and um, his myth moves up carries on that we find through other characters tell of his great his great exploits. So the hero's journey is about going from normality um, to uh, a place where you're challenged, you have helpers, you face your fears, and you come back again to share the story um, to set society free with your, your inner knowledge. And we all have that. We all take, a, take hero's journeys in our lives. Some are more significant than others. Um, and this, this fundamental hero's journey mono myth, monomyth, is carried throughout all literature, Throughout the world, um, this basic story of you know it's either a stranger enters the room or someone goes on the journey, and that's just how we structure stories so that we can understand them. And through these myths, we express our societal societal beliefs. And of course, in the in the, in the Luke Skywalker one, is that there's good and there's bad, um, and that if you if you do bad things to fight bad people, you will then become bad. Um, that's kind of the uh, the, the part, you know, the, the fundamental story there. Um, and but if you if you do good for good 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 for good reasons, you you will ultimately prevail, or as well as your your ideas, which is Martin Luther King that we're we're going to do sit-ins at the at the um, at the on the tables so that we so that we can sit, uh, eat at the restaurants. We're not going to. You know, break the windows at the restaurants to get our way, and of course that was based on Gandhi. Um, and so it's we carry these societal values in our myths. So, Phil, are there any questions that you wanted to ask? I know you've been oh, watching right some of the video, just, just taking it all in. So, a lot of information. So, not just with the monomyth, but with the caves uh, in general. So, you think that this these particular caves is really showing an ancient initiatory system. And that's the earliest evidence yeah. of this initiatory system. That's basically spread around the whole world uh, that is included in these caves. Exactly. Yeah. It, yes. It, that's your, um, that's a good point that you brought up so that this, this, this is the earliest example that we have now have of, of a teacher and an apprentice. But of course that same system we have in, North American, Native Americans had it, as well as in Africa and in Australia. Um, so this, the older, the older man, or in this case is the older man, but it could be the older woman. Um, the, the older man, speaking of the young boy, become archetypal characters. Um, and so when we see that this, the man speaking to the ear of this apprentice, um, the story is evoked. 
we can see that he's telling us something. And the boy has his big, wide red eyes and his mouth is pursed and his ears. You can actually see his ear open. And so we we can we can pick we can pick stories out of this by looking at the panel. Now, the, the different people that the different ancients that had seen this panel found different stories. Um, and so the, the Saharan Tuaregs found found this their myth of Ameriqui, the elf, the young female elephant, and and the young woman. Um, whereas the the ancient Greeks found the story of Hercules, um, and we can find all the pieces in the the later journeys, the later um, labors of Hercules in this panel, including the exact places that he goes to on those labors. Um, the the ancient Egyptians found the story of um, of the Sphinx. Um, and so everybody looks at, everybody looked at this and they, they, they fundamentally found the same stories. Actually, they found the same characters, but they made their own stories. In There's an alligator in this, or actually, I'm sorry, it's a crocodile. It's a crocodile. And the crocodile became, you know, for St. George, a dragon slayer, um, it becomes the, you know, the, the, the crocodile becomes the dragon. Okay. It's an old, it becomes an old myth as well. And so everybody that saw these came up with a different story and they, um, so, but we, we still see that we still, we see the crocodile as an archetypal villain character and we see the eagle helping the apprentice as well as the horse. Um, and we also, there's another archetypal character we find this and that is the egg that we have two characters actually holding this egg and the egg comes from the great auk. And so the, this cosmic, this egg which is the, um, the the singularity in the cosmos is is you know what came first the chicken or the egg? Well, actually the the auk laid the egg and it goes around the circle for one year or the next. And by the way, the the, um, the timing of the auk laying the egg is exactly the same as the timing of the panel. It also supports that that concept. So we have this concept. We have the story around the world of a cosmic egg, and that everything springs from the from the egg. We have it among the Chinese, the Vedics. We have it the um, um, Norse cultures. We have it in the Dogon. It's it's we have the ancient Egyptians. Just and um, the um, people ancient Greek, ancient Greece. They had it, and we we act, we can see that cosmic egg in the story on this panel. And the it's actually so the cosmic egg in this version, this thirty four thousand years ago, was that every year the egg hatches and the cosmos is created. Versus how we view it today is that the cosmic egg was a singularity in the cosmos, actually the beginning of everything. And the Big Bang itself was was um, actually um, – it came from um, Father Lamanter, who was a Belgian priest. And Lamanter worked out mathematically that the universe is expanding. Okay. Um, and um, in, in it it was joked about the concept was called the big bang, big bang, like it was an orgasmic moment because at that time people weren't going along with the expanding universe and people. And the, the Pope at the time, Pope Pius XII, who was, uh, who was in line with the Nazis, um, came out and said, well, this, since there is a, now a scientific proof of a creation, a singular point, therefore there must be a creator. And so scientists, physicists at the time were just like, we're not going to go down this road. And ultimately Hubble noticed that there was an expanding universe and we then came to accept, or actually, 
actually it's still diversion pinions out there, but we came up to the concept of the Big Bang, which we now find in high school science books. Um, so this concept of the Big Bang that we find in the high school science books goes back to Lamanter, who had the concept in his head from all these myths he had been hearing throughout his life about the cosmic egg and the singularity, that there was, there was a, a single point in the cosmos. Um, so we, we can't escape from these, these archetypal characters, whether they be the, the cosmic egg, which creates the, the universe, or the, the characters on this hero's journey that is a system in the same way as Chewie and, and Obi-Wan and um, um, the other characters in, in Star Wars do. We have, the, we have these, these stories within us. And some, someone asked me once that, well, now that we have this information, we can see that we, how far we haven't come in the last 34,000 years. Will it change the way we see or a path for the future? So that's a question for you guys. What do you think? That the, is there the, our salvation, does our salvation lie in the rediscovery of these, this initiatory system and the monomyth? Yeah. Well, I was wondering about, uh, to kind of further on that question, you know, uh, these secret societies like Freemasonry, you know, uh, do they, is this same system, do you think the same system exists in, in that and like modern day occultism as well? Because well, if so, there is such a, there is a rediscovery of a lot of that. And I wonder if that's, if that's not where we're going. Well, the related to the Freemasons, I'm not a Freemason, but for, I've have had Freemasons as an audience, and I they talk about layers of levels of Freemasons. I don't really get the whole get it, um, but they've all been pretty surprised about the whole thing. So this, so what we're talking about, what we've talked about tonight, is not within the. I mean, they'll have the symbology and they'll have archetypes, but this big picture as we're seeing it now is not sure. In the free in the Freemason picture, but it isn't. It is in the myths from the ancient Greeks, and it's in the myths of Hercules, for example, um, and that that the story of Hercules and the journey of his labors, it's a very old story. Yes. I mean, it's yes, it is. it's um, it's beyond time that human time that we could possibly even imagine, because it, it's the the characters are in this panel, and we don't we don't chisel. You know, someone comes up with a story, they don't start chiseling at rocks. They start around campfires. And this the Hercules story, this journey could have been told for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years before it ended up in the rocks. Well, um, I, I believe I see what you're getting at is that trying to rediscover this ancient system going back to this to this route, especially now as we're experiencing so many problems with the planet and our place mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. That maybe it is a good idea to try to get back in tune with nature. So all the scientists, archaeologists, and so on that had seen this panel, millions of people. How do you tell them? Well, guys, you're just not seeing it. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, right? Yeah, yeah. it's um, and because so it, this panel is partly about seeing the, seeing the forest through the trees. It's about not counting the numbers, but seeing the, you know, the story behind it. Um, and well, there's the last spring, a paper, a paper was released out of United Kingdom and it was widely disseminated in the press about the Paleolithic artists have being autistic. Um, 
And mm-hmm. I, I went back and read the paper. And the paper, what it said was that there's people who have local so, – so, so it's called local processing bias have the ability to see embedded images or overlapping characters. So there's, there's that painting. I believe she's in Canada, and she has the, she has the um, horses in the, in the birch trees. And if, if someone asks you how many horses in your city, you obviously go start looking for the horses. But if someone doesn't show you the horse, tell you the horses, you probably never see them. And she, I think she does it with the wolves as well. And so she has this local processing bias that she has the ability to see embedded images. Um, they just sort of pop. She can she can create them and also pop out. I have that same ability. And what the, what the paper said is that people have this ability. Some people who have that ability have been shown to be also artistic. So the paper never actually said artistic people may put the cave art. It said people with this, this um, local, local processing bias have the ability to see these embedded images. So the people... If we, if we, if we are society, millions of people, and we're talking all the major journals, did not see this, these embedded images, have we really learned that there's more, more than seats than can see that the eye sees not normally, and that we have there is neurodiversity that all of our minds are are wired differently, and just because somebody can't do this but they can do that, it doesn't mean that. If you can't do this, you should be ostracized. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to whatever college because we're tested for everything. But you see in this panel, absolutely everything. Um, we're not tested for um, seeing embedded images. We're not tested for seeing the forest through trees. We're tested to count the dots. I mean, it's just it just it is how we're tested to move forward in life. Yeah. And so we're. We're we're um, we're shrinking the gene the the, the, the neurodiversity gene gene pool throughout throughout testing, um, whereas the paleothetic artists they were they were testing for this ability to see the forest through the trees to see beyond the red disc and to see and to recognize the elephant in the room, um, so it creates a completely different way of testing. And I've been in communication with the people who wrote the the, the so-called autistic paper, and uh, and now they have they have they have a few panels that they can now use as an actual test with autistic and other people to see who can without telling them what's in the image, the test if they have the, the mind of the Paleolithic artists. Well, and uh, some of the some of the speculation would be that these ancient societies actually selected people for roles like for shamanic roles based upon based upon this neurodiversity yeah. and that someone who would be selected to be a shaman would be someone who would be able to pick out patterns like that or would have different ways of thinking than than the, they wouldn't be looking for someone with the with a, a normal uh, with a quote you know normal uh, just like the rest of the the group they'd be looking for someone who seemed to have extra you know perception ability different perceptions yes and that they have the ability to see the forest the trees and that they have the ability to um, see all the stars to 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 see the patterns in all the stars in the night sky so that they can tell time that they can say they can coordinate the stars with the sun and the moon to say well we're going to go fishing next week for salmon or the elk are going to happen next month that we need to get up and move our camp that they have this they also have this ability to tell a story to project their yeah. own mythology um, to captivate the audience that people would follow that myth and what's really this is what's so important about myths is that if you have a common myth, 
whether it be Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or a democracy or communism, people follow it. And you don't have to, people who, who've never met before, if they share that common myth, they'll follow it. Um, and it's when the myths separate. So you have the Sunni and Shiites in, in Islam, they're fighting with each other um, because they had the diversion of the myth. There's a separation of the myth. And so I believe that this I see these 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 images carry on for at least think, for 34,000 here. I can go to about 17,000 years at Lakota Lisco. Um, so 17,000 years, 17,000 years, we carry this intact, these, these, these myths intact in the Paleolithic art and they survived or they kept their societies or their culture to get together for so long because they shared the same myth. They looked at the same night sky. They saw the same animals in the environment and they, um, they were a cohesive group, people who tribes that they could come together and interact or interact around this common myth. They could um, they could go off into distant distant lands um, to trade with a common myth. Um, and so myths are so important. And in today's world, there's we sh- in the United States, we have this myth of democracy. Well, Bernie Sanders myth of democracy is completely different than the Koch brothers. But we all have this common belief that we have we have a voice, and of course the Koch brothers' voice is worth, you know, was a hundred million times more my than my voice. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah. and so, so if we, I mean, but we still believe we have this democracy. If we don't believe a democracy, we're gonna go, we're gonna have a revolution. Okay. Um, but we we keep that idea that if I still vote, I still carry my voice just equal weight ways the Koch brothers. Um, but it's not true, but I'm not going to start a revolution. Um, but we, but it's that it's that myth, uh, these myths that um, keep us together, moving in one direction. Um, and without the myths, we'd have completely different ideas, different beliefs, and we'd be cons- you wouldn't trust your neighbor, you wouldn't trust your own kids. Um, you'd just be at a constant like you know, you have no common ground for understanding, and no, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure about that word morality, but the the common values um, that keep us together. If one person believes the best, the common value is that I can steal out of my neighbor's garden, and another person thinks that you know this is my food, you need to buy it from me. Well, you got you can have you know the Hatfields and McCoys type of thing going on. Um, and so we these myths are important to us, and we can show we can look back in time to 30, at least thirty four thousand years ago to see that we had these myths and that we had these these societies which um, told these stories and fundamentally the same stories or the, the um, structure of the stories, including some of the characters as we still tell today. Well, I find it with a lot of people even today uh, who, who really haven't, who don't understand the monomyth, who don't see themselves in the myths. I think a lot of this is because they're, they're taking everything literally when really these myths are a way to explain your place in the world and universe and, and your life and, uh, and your journey. And, you know, people see these ancient systems and they think literally they, they refer to their own culture and say, oh yes, they're like literally just worshiping these different gods. And they're not really understanding what the, what the story is, what the underlying meaning, which I guess when you get to a, the, you know, higher esoteric level in those societies, when you become an adult or you become illuminated or whatever, then you understand that these are stories to explain concepts and not literal, you know, 
Supposed Except the metaphors, yeah, the metaphors made with art with archetypal characters, and the the sets change, the you know the the names change, and whether what kind of animal they are, um, or now machines change. You know, my daughter could come home from, home from school, and I could you know talk about saving for for the winter or for a rainy day, and I could say, you know, I was looking at the squirrels today, and they're collecting nuts, you know. They're, they're doing that because it's going to be, they're going to have some hard times ahead and they have to make sure they have food for the winter. And so we, we can tell metaphors, um, th- use metaphors to express things without, you know, pointing to my daughter and say, you know, you got your, your birthday money yesterday. You should put it somewhere, save it for when you actually need it versus going out and buying, you know, a dress today, nothing wrong getting a dress today. Um, but so we, we, we express our stories through the, through, the other beings in our world, whether they be uh, birds or squirrels, or we talked about earlier, the salmon, and they're all in that. And we express through the myths that there's always, there's all we, you know, we actually just I wouldn't just tell the story of the of the squirrel that I talk about the squirrel that didn't save the nuts and the squirrel that starved through the winter, and ultimately another squirrel who did save nuts felt bad for it, and that squirrel gave to the starving squirrel and. And we all all had you know it all ended well, um, and so we can we can find we we project our own psyche into the animals in our world to create these stories. And if you look at you know Marvel comics and so on, we have we have Ant Man, we have Batman, us Batman, <laughs> we have um, you know Aquaman. We we commonly we commonly use animals as characters for our own modern myths and that we're retelling the story from the past. What happens in this pale, in the pale of the image is that the, the character of Hercules, he, he overlaps with the gi of the eagle and he takes on, he, he transforms into an eagle. Um, and then he, he overlaps with the horse, which is Pegasus, and he becomes a centaur. He overlaps with the dolphin to become some sort of mermaid man. Um, and as he goes through this panel, Almost throughout it, his the the character's face is is superimposed over that of an animal, and so he gains this as he goes around his journey. He learns from each of the animals and gains strength from them in the same way as Batman and Ant Man and um, pretty much half of the gamut of the superheroes that we have. So we really we're there's something inside of us that we we have this ability to. Pull from the animal beings in our world, you know, the bull in the china shop, the, the wise owl, um, the, uh-huh. the, the woman is the woman is nesting before she when she's pregnant, getting ready for the child. Right. We take these these metaphors of, of the animals and we take them on, on ourselves, almost as if we're we're not separated from these animal beings. That there's something inside of us, whether we live in an apartment building um, or, or on a cruise ship, that we recognize that we're still at one with the natural world. Um, that we can't escape it. It's, you know, we are we are one with the cosmos, um, whether or not we consciously want to realize it. These are ways, Bernie, that I have never thought about before, but you are 100% correct. So all you have to do is just think a little bit about that, and, and that's it. You know, we still essentially practice a form of animism, even though we say we don't. Oh, absolutely! Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. Yo, yeah go to the movies. <laughs> right. We, you know, we can. You know, we look at um, Ant Man and Batman and Spider Man, and we—it's just natural. 
Yep. So it, and it's like, and we don't well, think about it, but it's true. We don't think about it. It just, yep. it just blends into our consciousness because the, the stories of native Americans and the stories in Africa, there where people, it's either the, the animal beings are the characters of the, of the story or the, or the, or the humans blend with the two, which is, we also find this Paleolithic image from 34,000 years ago. Bernie, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. There's so much more that we could talk about, and I'm sure as I get further into the book, I'll have probably a lot more questions. <laughs> but, thank uh, you. Uh, tell people where they can get the book uh, and where they can uh, see all uh, your writings and uh, your videos and such. Absolutely. So the book is available on everywhere those ebooks are available. Um, so if you, wherever you get your favorite ebook. The, the my webpage is beforeorion.com and there's lots of um, videos and presentations and so on and images and you could also I'm also on Twitter Instagram and um, YouTube and Pinterest as before Orion I use before Orion for everything um, follow me um, send me tweet me retweet my stuff um, and you know if this is a journey for everybody and I'm just I'm on the journey. And every day I look at something and I said, how the heck did I miss that? It's, it's just right in mm. front of me. Um, and it's been a lot of fun and I've uh, appreciated all the fun, pe- great people I've met on the way, including you three guys. Oh, thank you, Bernie. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Feeling is mutual. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close out this section and guys, we will be back on conspiracy normal. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, as per usual, mind blown. I need to buy the book. Um, I followed about ten percent of that conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty mind blowing. Uh, what did you think about that, Sergio? That was pretty interesting. Uh, I had watched some of the videos too, some of his lectures, and uh, it's it's a lot to take in. Um, they are very compelling as far as the uh, the images that, that are the carvings. And it is strange that no one had really picked them out like that before. Uh, but uh, it was real interesting, especially the monomyth stuff. And yeah. you know, I, don't, I don't know exactly about a lot of his, his timelines and some of his alternate history stuff, but the monomyth stuff especially was really interesting. Yeah, that's always fascinating. We're talking about Bernie Taylor, Tim. Are you familiar with him? Sadly, no. He did an interview not too long ago with Soraya. And uh, we'll have this show out like next week. But yeah, he's he's all about this uh, cave that's in Spain. That uh, he sees all these, these figures that I think they correspond to like constellations. It's, it's interesting stuff. Um, it's a lot to do with animism and with um, animism and naturalism because he considers himself a naturalist. I'm in. Yeah. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. I'm very, very interested in animism. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Tim, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, man. You're here. Oh, thanks for, for having me. You're here for just a little bit. Uh, you had an announcement that you wanted to, to tell everybody. Yeah. We, so I, my, I was self-hosting my podcast and it was fine until people started listening. 
and then <laughs> is that what happened? Okay. <laughs> the the bandwidth of my website keeps running out, so I had to change hosts. Um, I don't know why in this day and age there's a such thing as bandwidth running out, but I, there is. And uh, I, I changed to Podbean, which means the feed is going to change for Strange Familiar. So I'm reaching out to you know people I know who do podcasts and. Hopefully we share some of the same listeners and just trying to get the word out like, hey, still doing Strange Familiars. We're still doing shows, but the feed has changed. So if it doesn't pop up in your iTunes or your Stitcher or whatever, got to come look for us. We're at uh, strangefamiliars.podbean.com. And strangefamiliars.com will point there. It just doesn't yet, but it it will very soon. Okay, so today, um, and actually it's telling me to subscribe again, but I do see that episode 45 is... Up. Yeah, so yeah, it looks I, I like on feet. mine on iTunes. It looks like it's is. Is that mean that it's updated? I'm not sure because I, basically I'm running two feeds at the same time now. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So in, until uh, the the website points to Podbean, it's there's sort of two feeds running, and uh, I'm kind of at the mercy of my 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 web host <laughs> to change that for me because I don't know. I, it's just the tech end of stuff. I really don't know. Yeah. So you wanted to come on here and come on a couple other shows and just let people know that that's uh, that that's where it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you don't see us come up in your regular feed, you know, just look for us either at strangefamiliars dot com or look for us on Podbean strangefamiliars dot podbean dot com or uh, you know you might have to just go back and and resubscribe to the new feed. So I highly recommend Strange Familiar. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what you what you've been talking about on there lately. What's been the most um, interesting subject for you? Well, I tell you, and, and it's it's the last thing I was on Conspiracy Normal talking about, I think, the Flannel Man. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask you that if there's any more Flannel Man stories. <laughs> well, they mentioned, I guess one of the guys on last podcast on the left has a Flannel Man encounter. Uh-huh. And he, he mentioned that on the show and also mentioned Strange Familiars. And since then, things just blew up, like. Like we get, I get enough flannel man stories where I could do a dedicated flannel man podcast now, and mostly because of them. I have a question about flannel man. Does he have a, a nice Pendleton or is it just some of that Walmart crap? <laughs> <laughs> it's well, I tell you what, we're about to, we're going to make strange familiars flannel shirts with a, with flannel man patches on them. So uh, nice. they're, they're probably going to be discount. They're probably not going to be super nice high end flannel shirts. Oh. So what's one of the latest stories? Oh, let me see. I'm trying to think, uh, so many of these flannel man shirts are the uh, shirts. <laughs> Sorry. So many of these flannel man stories are people just see them. And that's the weird thing. They're just, people are seeing the, the same thing. But I tell you, one of the most interesting aspects that's coming up lately is I keep asking people this because my wife, uh, my wife was the first person I knew who saw this this flannel man person, and she saw it in the, her bedroom in her parents' house, and she had also seen these uh, black dogs. She called them hellhounds, I think. Hellhounds or demon dogs? Which were they? De- she called them demon dogs, and uh, they, these red-eyed black hounds she would see there too. So uh, randomly, another person who saw Flannel Man brought up that they'd seen black dogs. Well, now I've started asking everybody I talk to and interview about Flannel Man if they've seen these black dogs, and it's it's uh you know it's not it's not even fifty percent, but it's a high enough percentage where it's like really really interesting. A lot of people have seen them both. So mm. 
I don't know what that means, but you know, it's just another common factor. So that's been some of the accounts that have come up lately where I just, uh, I just ask people cause I don't, I don't pre-interview people if I, if I don't have to. And, uh, I save that question in reserve. So it's usually like the last thing I ask. And, uh, people are shocked to get these shock silences with these flannel man witnesses. And they say, yeah, I have. And then they'll tell the, the black dog story. So why they're seeing them both, I have no clue, but it's, it's just another interesting, uh, aspect of the phenomenon. So they're not seeing them necessarily both together, but it's, they'll have an incident where they see a black dog and then an incident where they'll see flannel man. Right. Yeah. There is one I have recorded where they, they saw them at the same time, but for the most part, it's, it's, they'll see them at completely different times. Are you going to do a flannel man book? Is that next? It's not next, but it's, it's coming. Yeah. I'm, I'm writing a flannel man book. Um, you know, it might just be all encounters. Cause I don't know at this point, I don't know what to say about the guy. I'm hoping yeah. that, that poking at this phenomenon will stir something up in a way and we'll get some answers because, uh, it really to a fault, everyone, everyone I talked to is like, I had no clue. Anybody else had seen this. I had no clue. This was a thing. And, uh, you know, we barely did when we started talking about it. I knew my wife had seen it and I'd seen something on an internet forum, someone, you know, years and years ago talking about it. So I knew it was a thing, but once we started talking about it and people started, you know, contacting us, like, I've seen this, I've seen this. And and like I said, especially after that, they mentioned it on last podcast, it's been bananas, the number of, of flannel man reports I've gotten. So we'll see what happens when we, when we uh, start poking around, maybe more people will see him or, or uh, maybe he'll sit down for an interview. <laughs> it's probably just Ren Collier anyway, you know, doing his out of body experiences. Uh, but, but that's the thing though. Do you, is it happening because now through your podcast and others, people are now more aware of it. So it starts happening more done made. A are we seeing this effect kind of happen in real time? For the most part, people are saying I saw him five years ago or something like that, you know, okay. or when I was a kid or, or, or something like that. So I recorded one last night. It was a very recent sighting. I think the, the lady saw him or I say him. It's They're not all describing the exact same person. What's in common is the flannel. So some people, you know, he's tall. Some people he's got a beard. Some people he doesn't. You know, some people he's he, – the, the lady last night said he was shorter and stockier. But – uh she had seen him in June, I believe, and that's the most recent report I've gotten. Most of them are like, like I said, like five years ago or two years ago, I saw him, or when I was a kid, I saw him. You know, I was listening to your show yesterday, and you had the guy on there from Sweden, and he had a lot of interesting, spooky stories. And one of those was something he encountered in the woods. Could you relay that? The Skogstra. And yeah. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And yeah, so he, uh, his grandmother owned a, like a camp for kids and he was camping out and heard his name being called from the woods when everyone else was asleep. Which is <laughs> Sir Phil's shaking his head. He's like, no way, dude. <laughs> super creepy. Um, Sir that, I mean, that, that's in folklore. I mean, that's the, that that'll pop up around Bigfoot stuff. That'll pop up, you know, in, in uh, Fey encounters it pops up, you know, in different places in folklore, this, you know, somebody's name being called from the woods. In fact, uh, our most recent episode, the devil's Creek, a dip in devil's Creek. We have some recordings of, uh, 
someone's pet being called from the woods. We actually we actually have the actual recordings. Whoa. And yeah, yeah, they're they're they um just incredibly fascinating story. But uh, so this names being called from the woods, it, it does it it happens. It's a thing. But uh, of course the kid just sat there and and didn't do anything, which is probably good. He just kind of hunkered down in a sleeping bag. And then he said the the next day he was in the house on the property got the feeling that he was being watched. He looked out the window and saw, like he said, a, a very young girl, like 13, 14 years old. I think he said by look. And, uh, she was, once she caught his eye, she waved at him. And then he said he saw her turn and walk into the woods. But when she turned around, she just blended right into the forest. And the, the folklore of the, of the Skogstra says that they have hollow backs that, or, or backs that look like hollowed out trees. So it's, uh, Seems like what he saw sort of confirms with with uh, some of the folklore over there. And I think he said that she was wearing like a nightgown, kind of. Yeah, yeah. He said like a like a slip, kind of white white slip of a dress. I think that's creepy. Yeah, that is so unbelievably creepy. Dude. <laughs> and uh, you're well. Is is James still doing co-host duty with you? Yeah, yeah. James had uh, like a life change for a minute there. He was working like three jobs, and and oh, wow. uh, he he actually has a real like. It's not you know a lot of people have quote girlfriends in Canada you know unquote but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but James actually has a real girlfriend in Canada, and he's been driving up to see her a lot. So you know he he's on he was on the latest patron episode, and I think the episode before that he was on. Oh yeah, he was on the Skulkstra episode a little right. bit. So uh, it's basically, you know, when we can get together and uh, I think his schedule's free enough, so he should be on more coming up. And he saw something weird coming back. Yeah. And, and that was really strange because I, I was literally like editing the Skoxer episode and, and he called me up. He's like, it's like, dude, I, I saw something weird. Give me a call. So I called him up and like, I mean, I was literally editing the episode when I called him and he's like, I saw this thing. It's like shaped like a man, but it it just blended in with, with the trees. It was like, it was green and it, you know, but it was a different color green than the trees, but it looked like it was trying to blend in. It was, it was, it was really weird. I mean, he describes it a lot better than, than I do here on the, on the episode. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm hit with this again, this kind of synchronicity where I'm like, well, that sounds a lot like, uh, what this guy in Sweden described when the, when the woman turned around, she just kind of blended in. So it was, it was, uh, it was good timing, I guess, on his part if he was going to see something weird. So it, it uh, paired nicely with with the uh, the Skogsra story. Any more developments with the uh, Beyond the Seventh Gate? I am writing a follow up. That'll be my next book. It's actually oh, nice. mostly done. Um, I believe it's going to be called "Don't Look Behind You." Um, Josh Cutchin wrote the foreword for it. And, uh, in doing so, he gave me a lot of really, really good suggestions. So I thought I was done, but, uh, Josh had some excellent suggestions, which I, I think I'm going to, going to add. So I have a little, a few rewrites to do, and then, uh, hopefully it'll, it'll be out before too long. You've been going to a place called site seven, mm-hmm. which I know is uh, a place that I think is like on private property. Yeah. But, uh, you've had some weird stuff happen out there too. I, there's the whole catalog of weirdness there. Wow. I mean, the we've seen stuff and nothing was, so we would see like what we would call flashes. And then our listeners would say, Oh, I've seen flashes of light too. 
it wasn't flashes of the light. It was flashes of movement, things that were so quick that we, you know, we saw something move by, like run by the trail, but we couldn't tell what it was. We couldn't say, you know, we couldn't even make a guess. You know, it was big and it, and it ran across the trail. That's all we could say. And it looked white, um, which is very interesting because a lot of everything that people was reporting out there is either white or gray. But, uh, yeah, I was, I now would go there and hike alone and stuff and kind of, it's easy to put this stuff sort of in the, in the maybe category in your mind. And and if you, if you see something there and you're kind of freaked out or, or you're there at night and, and you hear something weird, give a few days and you're, and for me anyway, I, you know, put a few days and I'm, I'm ready to go back. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not scared to go there alone, or at least I wasn't. But uh, we went there in February of this year, and I think that our episode is called Lights in the Woods. You can, you can hear it uh, pretty much real time, what we were seeing. I had been told by another guy who was going there that there were lights there in the woods, and, and he said they were eyeshine. I didn't believe for a second they were eyeshine. Uh, Bigfoot eyeshine. Yeah, that's what he was right. claiming. Right. I mean, we, we do have like Bigfoot reports in the area and stuff, and that's one of the things we're, we're you know, possibly working with. But this... The way these lights are, they they don't look like eye shine. They don't look like reflection at all. They look like LEDs in the woods. So so I saw them. I saw these LEDs, or I mean these lights that look like LEDs. They look like Christmas lights or something. And I'm looking at them like these are in no way eye shine. Like this is something self-illuminated. It looks like a man-made light. And in fact, I'm at this point I'm trying to you know reason like okay, what's out there that that I didn't notice before. Then the lights started to move. I'm like, all right, that's weird. They're moving. And then they started to change colors uh, very subtly, not blinking like Christmas lights, but they would sort of just just kind of morph from one color to another. They go. They started out as kind of a whitish blue, like I said, kind of like a, a bright LED light. Then they would go like blue, then green, then they might go to orange, and then back to white very, very slowly. Like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Still did not think they were eyeshine. No way. They're just weird lights. At this point, I was like, these are weird lights. And I'm still trying to figure out, like, how to reason them. Like, you know, is this some kind of light display or something somebody has out there to mess with people? Or, like, what's going on? Well, the fellow that was with me is uh, another James. He's not the James that, that usually uh, co-hosts with me. Just happens to be named James as well. He had a green laser a very powerful with like a, I think it's rated 10 miles or something. This thing will shoot. And I said, uh, put that laser in that light, see what happens. Hit that light with the laser. And he did. And when he would hit these lights, they would turn red and they would go out every time. Now, you know, he had to move the light around a little bit cause they're, they're, you know, awful ways in the woods. You can't just peg it right away, but when he'd hit them, you could tell because they would turn red and they would go out. It would kind of aperture out. They kind of like, like I said, it was like an aperture closing almost. They would go from red to black and they they go out. And a few minutes later, they'd light up again, back to white. And now I'm like, this is like, I don't know of any man-made light that does that. So that's the point where where I went from, okay, this is, there's a lot of maybes around here, but this is no maybe. Like this is three of us were standing there watching this happen, confirming with each other. Like, did you see that? Yeah, I see that, you know? And, uh, the fact that he would hit these lights again and again with that laser. And every time they turn red and go out really bizarre. 
again, I, and I, I specifically remember turning to the other guy who said they were eye shining, going, "I don't think it's eye shine, dude. I think there, there's some some kind of weird light." Well, within probably a couple months of that, I was listening to. It might have been a month even. I was listening to an episode of Sasquatch Chronicles, and a witness on there was describing Bigfoot eye shine, and he and he said, "You're not going to believe it, but it changes color." Huh. And he he described basically what I saw. Now he didn't have a laser. He didn't s- describe them, you know, hitting it with a laser, but he's describing it changing color. And he said it's it's really bizarre. And he said I know it's you know it's uncomfortable to talk about, but th- this is what I saw. Now this guy was in Texas, and I believe he saw the the lights in the in the silhouette of a creature. So here's someone who's actually seen it. And at that point. I went, well, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe Jeff, the guy said they were, it was eye shine all along. Maybe he's right. Maybe that's what it is. I, I really don't know. And even in that, I'm just using that as a a working theory because I heard someone, you know, completely unrelated describe what I saw. And then he said it was, it was Bigfoot eye shine too. Um, It's whatever it is. It's weird. It's really weird. I went back during the day and looked at the area and, and it was on the side of a hill. So you know, I, I thought maybe maybe some kind of atmospheric, you know, the lights refracting through the atmosphere in some weird way. And it, it only looks like what we're seeing. But uh, it was the side of a hill. It's, we weren't looking through a hill. There's no possible way. So at that point, that area became very, very real for me. And, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to hike there alone anymore. <laughs> wow, Tim, that's crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, it's I, I still can't officially say it's eye shine, but like I said, it's just, it's just one of the working theories I have. It's, it's better than anything else, I guess, or, or as yeah. good. I'll say it's as good as anything else I have as to what they could be at this point. Well, thank you, Tim. That's a nice little teaser for when we get you on next time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm ready to come on anytime. I love Conspiranormal. Awesome. Thank you, sir. We love you, man. Strange Familiars is one of my favorites. Thanks, dude. For sure. Uh, Stay stay on the line with us. We're gonna we're gonna close out the show with you. So Alrighty. Rob, you can tell everybody uh well tell actually tell everyone, Tim, where again where they can find Strange Familiars. Strangefamiliars.com. If for some reason uh that hasn't ported over yet, strangefamiliars.podbean.com. But uh hopefully real soon strangefamiliars.com is gonna point to the, the podbean. So that'll make it simple for everybody. Excellent. Now I'm gonna give Rob the part that he really loves to do. All right. Uh, if you want to help support the show, you can go to um, patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got various tiers there. We do bonus episodes. It helps us evacuate squirrels from the studio and, you know, keep equipment up to date and all those, all those fun little things. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe, you don't want a monthly payment come out, you can do a one-time donation through our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you want to support the show, but you don't want to spend any money doing it, a great way to do that is a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. Excellent. Any closing thoughts? I think everybody's, <laughs> everybody's faded tonight. <laughs> Surfy almost died today, Tim. So, Oof. yeah, he's, he's had a, he's had a rough day, but he's still here. <laughs> he's still here. He's dedicated, man. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, join us next time. We are going to do a show with Ren Collier again. He's coming back. 
we're going to do about space communism. The space communism spectacular episode. Which I'm pretty much turning that all of, all to you, Sir Phil. That's <laughs> yes. going to be pretty much all you. Yes. <laughs> it will be fun. <laughs> it will be. It will be. All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening, and we will be back next time on Conspiranormal! You like that? I oh, love that. Man. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.